Hello. Good afternoon. I hope you're enjoying the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Um, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce Jesse to you. Now, the other great pleasure that I have is that I'm the producer of this festival. So last year we had a terrific talk in this very room with uh, Chris Ryan, who did If You Want Fidelity, Get a Dog. Now, after the festival, it was great. It was great. After the festival, Chris was like, you know who you have to have? You have to have Jesse Bering. So... Dr. Jesse Bering is a research psychologist and former director of the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Queen's University, Belfast. He's a columnist for Slate and a Scientific American and author of The God Belief, or God Instinct, where he proposes the belief in God was an evolutionary advantage, which is now unnecessary. And most recently, the book Why is the Penis Shaped Like That, which is a collection of his essays on being human, and it's awesome. Like, go and get this because you will be really popular at dinner parties. <laughs> um, it's, it talks about acne, it talks about suicide, it talks about pedophilia, it talks about semen, it talks about rubber fetishes. You can't go wrong. <laughs> He's um, currently working on a new book, which is tentatively titled Perv, and today he's uh, going to see what you think, so we'll see. And he's also a number six on the Kinsey scale. So that means he's pretty gay. <laughs> so Jesse's here to tell us all about why we are all sexual perverts. Thank you for that interesting introduction. Um, yeah, I actually am a six on the Kinsey stick scale. I, um, I really have absolutely no attraction to women whatsoever, although I, I am mildly attracted to you, I think, but uh, we'll address that maybe later tonight. Um, no, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. This is a, a really interesting opportunity for me to explore uh, these particular questions about sexual deviance and perversion. Um, and I would imagine that most people here are perverts. And in fact, that's the argument that I'm going to try to make uh, and try to convince you of at some point during the talk. Uh, and also addressing uh, some of the deeper sort of mil uh, moral and philosophical questions about what it means to be a pervert uh, and to be classified as a sexual deviant. Uh, so with that in mind, um, let me try to uh, lay out for you sort of what I mean when I say that you are a sexual deviant. And I do think you are probably a pervert through and through, if we look closely enough. And I don't want you to get too defensive here. Uh, imagine, for example, if some infinitely obtrusive and omniscient bureaucratic arm of the government existed solely to document every sexual response of every citizen, from the most tempestuous orgasmic excesses to the slightest twinges of genitalia, to unseen hormonal cascades and subcranial machinations. Filed under your name, your name in particular in this uh, fictional scientific universe, would be your very own scandalous dossier. Intricate and exhaustive in its every embarrassing measurement of your self-lubricating loins. <laughs> and, I, and remember, this goes all the way back to your earliest adolescence. And buried somewhere in this secret biography, I would imagine, is a cold, hard, undeniable fact of your erotic response that would probably hobble you instantaneously with shame should anyone ever find out. Now, perhaps it was just a fleeting, long-forgotten secretion, a lingering gaze misplaced, uh, a furtive whiff of some object redolent with another person, a wayward click of the mouse, 
uh, uh, hypothalamic effervescence that made you tingle down below. But nevertheless, this is also a corporeal reality that is specific to you as an individual. It's a shocking, incontrovertible deed of your body uh, or an outright commission of lust that you've probably never shared with a single soul. You've probably never even dared whisper it to yourself, in fact. Now, if taken in isolation, perhaps even in context, this unblinking fact, this unique venereal data point, would probably register in the consciousness of someone somewhere else in this very audience today as evidence of your sexual deviance, or even potentially your criminality. Uh, so in the unforgiving layer of another's critical eyes, I would say you are, and many other people here would say, you are a filthy, loathsome pervert because of it. In other words, you're human just like the rest of us. And that's true for anybody. I mean, for blue-haired grandmothers, of somnambulant school teachers, of faultless nuns, um, and of us, of you, under all skins, once roamed a concupiscent beast. But the best-kept secret is bigger than the universality of these sordid turn-ons. Rather, it's this. And this is why I'm interested in this topic as a psychologist. Exploring these perversions is moral progress. The illumination of any corner of the vast psychological cosmos that makes us human, even the very darkest corners, is a moral accomplishment by virtue of its ability to outshine our ignorance, our fear, and our denial of reality. For those who are willing to tether themselves mercilessly to these twin pillars of science and rationalism, it's well worth getting one's thoughts a little dirty, even a lot dirty perhaps, uh, while excavating our species' lascivious soul. The rats therein will flee at the daylight falling at their feet. There's only so far that our sympathies can take us, of course, and entering other minds is neither pleasant, not pretty, uh, when it comes to certain categories of sex offenders. But even the worst of them are human. And so, in effect, they are we. That is to say, they are our species and not some other animal. Uh, I consider nothing that is human alien to me. This is what the, the Roman philosopher Terence once said. Terence, of course, didn't know um, of the, the hundreds of paraphilias and fetishes that researchers would come to discover, uh, including, uh, well, let's see here. We'll get to those in just a second. These are just the A's in terms of the, the paraphilias. Uh, which are quite interesting. You can ask me about any of those in particular if you'd like later on. Uh, so he didn't know anything in particular about these paraphilias. You know, he, we would eventually come to discover them. Uh, but he, you know, he voiced those, those, that argument uh, a century, at least a century before Christ was even born. So I think it's possible that Terence would have trouble finding common psychological ground with, uh, say, teratophiles. Here's a picture of the elephant man uh, uh, Joseph Merrick. Uh, teratophiles are those who are attracted to the congenitally deformed. Uh, this is their primary erotic target. Uh, or autoplushophiles, we just saw a picture of that earlier. Uh, these are individuals uh, who uh, masturbate to their own image as anthropomorphized stuffed animals. Uh, not, 
You've probably heard about furries before, and I should point out that not all furries actually have this sexual orientation, but there is a small percentage of furries uh, that actually are attracted to themselves erotically uh, as, uh, as the image of a stuffed animal. Uh, so when we have such knowledge, however, we can, I think, at this point, try our best to really sort of fulfill uh, Terence's legacy today, really try to understand what makes them human and what we have in common with them. Now, uh, before we go much further, I think a, a brief etymology lesson is probably in, in order here. Uh, perverts weren't always the libidinous boogeymen that we know and loathe them as today. And I don't simply mean this to imply the obvious fact that sexual mores have shifted dramatically over the course of history and across societies. That's certainly true, of course. Rather, throughout our past, the very word pervert literally meant something else entirely than what it does today. Although it probably wouldn't have helped his case, for example, the peculiar discovery that some peasant during the reign of, say, Charles II used conch shells for anal gratification, or that he inhaled deeply a stolen batch of ladies' corsets, uh, would have been merely coincidental to any accusations of his being perverted. In 1646, the, Brit the British lexicographer Thomas Blount included the following brief uh, entry for the verb pervert in this book, Glossographia, uh, which was a book also known by its more cumbersome title, A Dictionary Interpreting the Hard Words of Whatsoever Language Now Used in Our Refined English Tongue. <laughs> and here was his definition, to turn upside down, to debauch or seduce. Now, it's true that all of these activities do occur with some regularity in your typical suburban bedroom. But in fact, we only perceive these lewd winks in Blount's definition of a term that was floating around the old English countryside through the warped lenses of our own modern minds. The word seems to fit so perfectly, I think, with the subject of sexual deviance today. The very ring of it, pervert, is at once melodious and cloying. It's producing a, a noticeable snarl on the speaker's face. Uh, pervert, it's, it's so rich. Um, you know, so the image of, of a lecherous child molester uh, or a trench-coated flasher in a park, a pornographer or a serial rapist is conjured up in our heads. Yet despite this impression of some deeper semantic reality, the real lexical heart of a pervert was something altogether different from most of its existence. For hundreds of years, your average pervert was simply an apostate who had willfully turned his back uh, on the draconian morality of the medieval church. Its first written appearance was in the pages of the Catholic mystic Boethius' treatise Consolation of Philosophy, which was composed in Latin around the year 524 AD. Um, and it was translated into Old English by Chaucer only in the 14th century. Uh, so Boethius's perverter, from which Blount's definition certainly originates, was a bland turning away from what is right. And that, much, that meant much the same as it does for God-fearing people today, which is to say somehow against what is biblical. Uh, if we borrow this definition uh, for the present iconoclastic world of science, and perhaps the best, uh, you know, perhaps the best example of a pervert might be somebody like this, um, uh, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. <laughs> In this context, Dawkins, uh, who is, of course, the author of The God Delusion and a well-known atheistic proselytizer, 
uh, many would say, has long been wantonly seducing individuals to turn away from canonical teachings. Uh, he was a, a pervert in the truest sense of the term. And of course, there are others as well. You might recognize some of these faces here. Uh, these would all be perverts in the classical sense of the word, uh, without anything to do with sexuality. Well, perhaps sexual too, but that's a different question. <laughs> So it was only at the tail end of the 19th century that the label pervert leapt from the histrionic sermons of fiery Christian preachers and into the heady clinical discourses of stuffy European sexologists. And it would be some time after that still before the term would be applied colloquially to this, you know, the image of the creepy, bespectacled man up the road who likes to watch the schoolgirls at the bus stop while sipping tea on his porch. Now, having said all this, however, it would be a mistake to think that the gradual semantic migration of perverts didn't occur with, without the clattering bones of medieval morality dragging behind. Notice the suffix vert, uh, generally to turn, hence convert means to turn to another, revert means to turn to a previous state, invert means to turn inside out, and pervert means to turn away from the right course. But pervert alone has that sort of devilishly malicious core to it. It's got this distinctive quality of obstinacy, uh, notes one psychoanalyst, petulance, peevishness, self-willed in a way that distinguishes it from more common uh, deviations. We still hear occasionally this term pervert or perverting being used in tune with its more archaic origins. Judges and lawyers might, for example, speak of perverting the course of justice, which is to say thwarting social fairness. In everyday parlance, however, this term has, is now reserved mainly for sexual deviance, or else used jokingly, and in some cases even claimed proudly, I think, for that sole purpose. Clearly, however, the word itself still possesses more than a little air from its moralizing past. So how did this sudden etymological transformation from religious heretic in 524 AD to disgusting sexual deviant only in the past century or so come to pass. Word meanings are so ingrained in our shared vernacular and they're so communal and abstraction that we often fail to appreciate that they are rooted not in divine, not in divine decree, but in a solitary forebrain. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, Shakespeare reminds us. Likewise, a pervert by any other name would smell as foul, or at least make us bristle. Now, the first buds leading to the present-day pervert's horns is probably connected to the work of this person, the Victorian-era scholar Havelock Ellis from South London. He's often credited with being the first to use the word pervert in the, in the sense of sexual deviant uh, in the 1890s. Now, oddly enough, Ellis wasn't using the word pervert in a pejorative, pejorative sense, a quite the opposite, in fact, since he was actually among the very first to take a non-judgmental approach to understanding the natural variety of human sexual expression. He was also a vehement supporter of eugenics, uh, and he even held court for a while as the president of the Galton Institute, an, an organization that sought to improve the fitness of the human race's genetic stock through carefully regimented breeding. The heritability of kinkiness didn't seem to worry him, however. In fact, uh, it would be an affront to the very idea of irony to overlook how the scientist who first innocently referred to sexual deviance as perverts had his own uh, unusual predilections. Ellis's Europhilia 
which is a paraphilia involving a primary erotic attraction to urine, has been well documented. I was completely normal, he, he wrote of his own sexuality in an otherwise lackluster autobiography. Oh, but, but oh yes, he said, before I forget, uh, he reflects on his fondness for urine. Um, then kind of defensively, it's not extremely uncommon, uh, and it has been noted of men of high intellectual distinction. <laughs> in his senior years, this divine stream, as he called it, uh, proved the cure for Ellis's long-standing impotence. He gave into these wet desires, and he even began to fancy himself quite openly a connoisseur of pizuses. He wrote, I may be regarded as a pioneer in the recognition of the beauty of the natural act in women when carried out in the erect attitude. In one letter to a female acquaintance, he chided her for forgetting her purse at his house, adding this quotation, I have no objection to your leaving liquid gold behind. <laughs> now, you laugh, but Ellis steadfastly refused to regard his xerophilia as shameful. It was never to me vulgar, he wrote, but rather an ideal interest, a part of the yet unrecognized uh, loveliness of the world. Yet where Ellis really made his mark, so to speak, uh, was his landmark treatise on homosexuality. And this is where the term pervert first appears uh, in the pages of his classic 1897 text, Sexual Inversion, one of the first psychosexual investigations into the nature of same-sex desires. In this book, co-authored by the erudite and actually gay literary critic John Addington Simons, the authors use the term pervert interchangeably with the more neutral term invert. Inversion, in their view, reflected homosexuality as being a sort of flipped-around form of the standard heterosexual pattern of attraction, which was a clear enough use of the term. Uh, so the authors adopted perversion as a related but wider term, applying it to a range of socially prohibited sexual behaviors. In their turn-of-the-century view, which is actually quite progressive at that point, inverts, or homosexuals, were fairly normal as far as expected variance over the course of human history and within the natural world actually goes. So the semantic seams of the word perversion thread back to its original religious usage in Ellis and Simon's understanding that homosexuals were just one of many different kinds of sexual minorities seen as sinful by that era's equivalent of the moral majority. Homosexuals were first labeled as perverts to reflect a questionable moral subjectivity, not to capture some deeper truth about their desires being wrong. Now, these authors were among a handful of pioneering sexologists that were finally beginning to carefully tease apart the complicated strands of human sexuality. Or at least they were using as rigorously objective an approach as could be mustered given the negligible amount of knowledge that was available to them at the time. Other scholars, such as the Austrian psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing, uh, regarded by many as the father of abnormal sexuality studies, as well as the German psychiatrist Wilhelm Steckel, who coined the term paraphilia, were similarly committed to this newly objective, amoral, scientific approach to deviance. Their writings may seem uh, tainted with bias to us today, but, and of course, you know, they really are, but they also display a humanitarian concern for those who found themselves through no doing or choice of their own, aroused in ways that society demonized them for. And it's worth bearing in mind, for instance, that, you know, Sexual inversion was penned on the heels of Oscar Wilde's sensationalized 1895 trial in which this great Dubliner wit, of course, famously lamented uh, the love that dare not speak its name. 
the word mocks the, the world mocks at it and sometimes puts one in the pillory for it reflected wild before a london jury sentenced him to two years of hard labor for the crime of sodomy as it was at the time but these early sexologists also found themselves confronted by angry social purists who feared that such novel scientific endeavors would simply open the door for this inevitable collapse of morality. Such anxieties over the slippery slope effect uh, have actually been around for a very long time. More socially conservative scholars saw these researchers' scientifically neutral approach to sexual deviance as a dangerous stirring of the pot, legitimizing wicked things as natural, uh, variants of behavior seducing normal people into the unethical lifestyles of the degenerate. Merely giving horrific conditions such as homosexuality their own proper scientific names, many of these early critics felt, uh, made them that much more real and that much more threatening. Now, the distinction between homosexual behavior and homosexual orientation was actually groundbreaking, and it, it was what was arguably the first and most important step, I think, in the history of gay rights. It's also one, of, I think, that's gone almost entirely unrecognized by most contemporary gays and lesbians. The early sexologists regarded homosexuality as a clear psychosexual trait or orientation, not just something one did with members of the same sex. This may seem like common sense to us today, but it was vital. Although most of the early sexologists, with perhaps the exception of Ellis, still considered homoerotic attraction to be a mental illness, that wasn't to be indulged in, of course. Uh, their distinction between same-sex behavior and homosexuality as an orientation was a watershed moment. For the first time in modern history, inverts that acted on their same-sex desires were treated not as fallen people who were so licentious that, they, that they'd even resort to that, uh, but as being true to their biological natures, flawed as these natures were then believed to be. It would take many decades for homosexuality to be decriminalized throughout the United States, Europe, and Australia as well, nearly a century before uh, it was declassified formally as a mental illness. But this new medicalization of inversion was, at least by contrast with an earlier state of affairs, progressive in that it offered some degree of protection against overzealous prosecutors who sought to jail anyone who was caught in a same-sex tryst. Yet the die had been cast for this disparaging term pervert um, and its accidental association with gays and lesbians. This connection actually lived quite long, even in the clinical literature. This was especially true in, within psychoanalytic circles, uh, neo-Freudian circles in particular. Not so long ago, some scholars were still interpreting anal intercourse among gay men as an unconscious desire among the recipient to nip off the other's penis with his tightened sphincter. Never consciously occurred to me as I was engaging in that behavior, actually. <laughs> but who knows? In this way, which is so characteristic of the pervert, uh, argued the psychiatrist Mervyn Glasser in, eight, in 1986, not terribly long ago, he is trying to establish his father as an internal object with whom to identify, as an inner ally and bulwark against his powerful mother. <laughs> now, that may sound as scientific to us today as astrology or etchings on a tarot card, but all the same, it's the, it's the type of thing that so many gay men would have expected to hear if they ever sought counseling for their inevitable woes in a world that saw them as mentally ill. Today, the word pervert sounds just silly, or at least provincial, when it's used to refer to gays and lesbians. 
Even such minor accomplishments, however, are the result of hard-won civil rights battles. And campaigning for full equality is still critically important for most same-sex couples. But the term pervert is still used freely and without any consideration, really, in the disparaging of other human beings who similarly have no say whatsoever over their sexual desires. It's as though, despite our humane and increasing appeals to science and the natural world in defending gays and lesbians, deep down we still suffer from the illusion that there's some sort of God who set the limits on the acceptable forms of sexuality, and from which all actual perverts deliberately and arrogantly stray. Even evolutionary biologists tend to frame their gay-friendly arguments on the sole fact that same-sex behaviors occur in other species too, which is seemingly to say, oh, relax, these people are fine because, you know, they really aren't that weird in the grand scheme of things. You know, there's good emotional currency in animal comparisons, and I like this tack very much for its rhetorical value. But it's also deeply problematic from a philosophical perspective because it simultaneously invokes a moral judgment against those people whose sexual orientations are not found in other species. When thinking about sex and morality, it's all too easy to fall prey to this philosophical error called the naturalistic fallacy, which I would imagine some of you have heard of. In effect, the fallacy assumes that that which is natural is therefore okay, good, or socially acceptable. But nature is two things and two things only. It's mechanistic and it's amoral. So, for example, heterosexual sex can produce offspring. Homosexual intercourse cannot produce offspring. Yet to extrapolate from these mechanistic facts of procreation some moral directive about what we should and should not do with our genitalia is to assume an intelligent creator that designed our reproductive anatomies. And that pre-Darwinian view, that there is some intelligent mind uh, needed to account for the human form, and that this preconceived design should in turn somehow dictate our social behaviors, lies at the flawed heart of the unnaturalness argument against homosexuality. This is usually manifested in some god-awful rendition of the Adam and Steve uh, fundamentalist refrain. But it also applies to the other paraphilias just as well which, well, lest we forget, homosexuality was also considered to be for a very long time. Now, treating another person as being immoral in essence, simply because their brains and their genitals respond to non-traditional stimuli in a way that places them in the minority of the population, is really quite strange when you stop to think about it. And this is true no matter what form of sexual deviance we're referring to. Pedophiles are, of course, today's most wicked moral monsters. Yet even in the case of pedophilia, behaviors and desires are often conflated as equivalent social tragedies. Sexual actions upon children or other vulnerable classes, such as the elderly or animals, may be harmful and tremendously so, in fact, but it's clear that our moral judgments are not reserved to actions alone. Pedophiles are shunned whether or not they ever molest a child because they are essentialized as evil. They're disgusting and wrong. They're true perverts, uh, in other words, in line with the term's original religious origins. Likewise, knowing that your neighbor can obtain sexual gratification only by masturbating to violent rape fantasies, or being aware that horses titillate your local liberal MP, uh, <laughs> would also probably cast them in a permanently unflattering light to you. 
even though these people have not, to the best of your knowledge, ever harmed any child, any woman, any animal, it's all but impossible not to attribute to their ethereal sexual desires a significant moral weight. So how can sexually deviant thought, mere breath on the air, as the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre um, uh, once called the human mind, possess such a palpable presence? In fact, there's a revealing contradiction here, I think. On the one hand, society tends to believe that pedophiles, for instance, have actively chosen evil. What's next, we hear social conservatives say in response to many gay rights issues, the right to be a pedophile or to be a zoophile. But to be a pedophile or a zoophile or a teratophile or an autoplushophile or a whateverophile has really never been illegal because what these people have in common is the nature of their sexual desires, not actions arising from these desires. Just as a homosexual who has never had sex uh, or has only been with the opposite sex is still a homosexual, a pedophile who has never molested a, a child is still a pedophile, a zoophile who has never been with a non-human uh, animal is still a zoophile, and so on. So to say that one doesn't have the right to be of these particular derogated classes is rather nonsensical, or at least it's fairly dark ages in its insinuation. It's equivalent to saying that a person does not have the right to exist not because they've committed some terrible crime against another, but instead because they are rotten at their biological core. Yet note that if one accepts the view that nature is amoral, there can simply be no such thing as a rotten biological core. Still, many people today would no doubt endorse a preemptive ex extermination of social classes such as pedophiles, arguing that such measures are harsh, but ultimately worth it since they protect children. We tend to have short memories for, act, for past actions of hasty extremism, however. And for many Americans, at least, navel-gazing at a similar better-safe-than-sorry approach to sexual deviance in 17th-century New England is a useful exercise. Now, the moral monsters of those days, 17th-century uh, American New England, were not pedophiles, uh, but instead these were men who were in league with the devil to impregnate barnyard animals so that evil prodigies uh, would quickly overrun this fledgling nation of theirs. This, this was a concept, prodigy, uh, that was originated by this stridently prude medieval scholar Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I think I've, oh, that's not him, actually. That's a different picture. There we go. Thomas Aquinas, who coined the term prodigy to refer to those hybrid creatures sprung from the loins of another species but born of human seed. They could also be conceived through having sex with atheists, uh, according to Aquinas, but it seems there were far fewer of those milling about the colonies than solicitous swine. Now, it's unclear if any of the early Americans that I'm about to tell you about were, were certifiable zoophiles who are individuals genuinely attracted more to animals than they are other human beings. They may have used animals as surrogates for human partners and uh, obtaining sexual gratification, or more likely they were falsely accused of such acts altogether, but researchers today at least know that zoophilia is a genuine paraphilia. Uh, just as it's impossible for non-zoophiles, I would imagine maybe not necessarily, but the majority of this audience, uh, to, say, become passionately aroused by the steaming mottled member of a Clydesdale uh, or, to be, or by a panting German shepherd. Zoophiles cannot be easily aroused by other human beings. One such man, he emailed me, well, he emailed me. <laughs> <laughs> 
He was actually a highly intelligent physician from suburbia. Uh, he could only, he told me he could only consummate his marriage by closing his eyes and imagining his new bride as a horse. Uh, needless to say, that marriage didn't last very long. Now, centuries ago in the newfound colony of Plymouth, uh, zoophilia was obviously not a known sexual orientation. Again, the construct of orientation simply doesn't appear anywhere until the late 19th century or so. There were only behaviors, sexual behaviors. But the hysteria over Satan's prodigal litters reached dramatic heights with the 1642 trial of a 16-year-old boy named Thomas Granger. This randy adolescent had been indicted for taking indecent liberties with what seems an entire stable of animals, including, quote, a mare, a cow, two goats, five sheep, two calves, and a turkey. <laughs> I realize the turkey part is probably a bit distracting, and how one goes about having sex with a large clawed bird is perhaps better left uh, to the imagination. But even more remarkable is the legal diligence and, sobri and sobriety with which this case was prosecuted. There was little question in these righteous minds uh, trying him that the boy should be dispatched to the flames for his egregious violations of natural law. But there was a lot of head scratching on the bench over which sheep exactly he'd been defiling. And therefore, which of them should be killed and which of them spared? We heard from Sam Harris the other night about some of these trials uh, attributing blame and responsibility to, for animals accused of committing crimes. This was crucial to sort out in this case uh, because if they executed the wrong sheep, they risked the unthinkable happening. A monstrously bleeding hoofed prodigy might drop undetected onto Plymouth. Uh, so naturally, there was a lineup of busily masticating ma victims uh, that was staged for Granger. With one trembling finger, the boy pointed out those five naive amber-eyed ruminants that had been targets of his secret woolly lust. Court records, if you look at them, indicate that the animals were then, quote, killed before his face, according to the law, Leviticus, and then he himself was executed. 16-year-old boy, remember. Similar to how we might seek to detect covert pedophiles today by some fallible laboratory techniques and measurements of arousal, moral arbiters of the past often relied on flimsy evidence to support their claims of suspected buggers which was old English slang for he who has sex with pigs, dogs, donkeys, and all and other sundry critters. In New Haven in 1646, for example, not far from the Yale campus, and just a few years after this Granger affair, a servant by the name of George Spencer, who was notorious for having, quote, a profane, lying, scoffing, and lewd spirit, was executed for making love to his master's pig. He swore that he didn't do it, but unfortunately for Spencer, the sow happened to give birth to a deformed fetus, a prodigious monster, it was written, that resembled George a bit too closely for most people's comfort. The pig fetus had, this is written in the records, but one eye for use, the other half, as it is called, a pearl, and it is whitish and deformed. And this embryological mishap was actually George's death sentence. His own ocular deformity bore an uncanny resemblance to that of the stillborn pig, and this was the critical piece of evidence that was held against him. Now, if anyone could commiserate with George Spencer and his troubles, it was a fellow citizen with the ridiculously unfortunate name of Thomas Hogg. Like Spencer, Hogg found himself at the center of an intense buggery investigation when a neighborhood sow bore another deformed fetus with, quote, a fair and white skin and head as Thomas Hogg is. 
And as an aside, perhaps, it's, it's hard not to help but pity the women of old New Haven with so many of its male residents being reminiscent of aborted pig fetuses. But back to Thomas Hogg and his hogs. Uh, the allegations made against the former by the townsfolk were so serious, in fact, that the governor and the deputy governor personally frog-marched him out to the barnyard uh, toward the sow in question and ordered him to scrat or to fondle the animal before their eyes. This was done to gauge just how intimately familiar they might be. And the records say, immediately there appeared a working of lust in the sow, insomuch that she poured out seed before them. When Hogg reluctantly titillated the teats of a different sow, that animal didn't return his affections. So he, like Thomas Granger and George Spencer before him, was executed. Now these zero tolerance laws against bestiality had been imported from Christian Europe, the stomping grounds of zealots like Aquinas. But an interesting development emerged on that side of the Atlantic in the 18th century that was highlighted by the case of a ragged French peasant named Jacques Ferron who was tried for having sex with a female donkey. As described by Edward Payson Evans in a classic book called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, Ferron would clearly be killed since he was, quote, taken in the act of coition with the animal. He'd be shoved along in shackles to the public square where an already smoldering stake was waiting to consume him, consume him in flames as he pleaded for mercy in front of a sea of scornful faces. Curiously, though, the locals chose not to slay the Jenny along with him. She was so beloved by the community that she was given her own separate trial with witnesses to testify that not once had they ever seen her exhibit even the slightest sign of promiscuity. <laughs> Before her proceedings, a certificate was drawn up affirming her virtuous reputation, and this impassioned plea was signed by the parish priest and was enough to persuade the court officials to acquit the animal on the grounds that she'd been raped. <laughs> now, if you think about it, the donkey case may sound absurd, but it was also a small moment in history in which people stopped and questioned religious ideas of punishment and chose their own more humane, rational course instead. Since God clearly prescribes death to any creature, willing or unwilling, tainted by human semen, the sparing of this she-ass might be seen as a graduation of sorts to the all-important principle of sexual consent, which is the defining feature of our, our own modern justice system. Now, fortunately, perhaps as the result of getting a little basic biology under our belts, and along with that knowledge, a cure for the trembling over Aquinas' ridiculous prodigies, uh, Americans and Europeans alike eventually abandoned this practice of immolating those who were suspected of interspecies sex. And, um, you know, since we now know that many European many Europeans possess Neanderthal DNA, it's quite tempting to speculate on how many of those fueling the bestiality files, fi fires of yore were actually flesh and, and blood prodigies themselves. Uh, yet in many ways, we're still, I think, grappling with this all-important consent issue. Now, in terms of human-animal sex, bestiality is expressly illegal in the majority of U.S. states today and in most developed countries around the world, in many places where bestiality is not listed formally as a codified crime, those who engage in sexual activities with animals are still occasionally prosecuted under animal uh, cruelty laws. This is good and just overall, and I say this as a platonic animal lover myself. But some, <laughs> some zoophilic cases are quite clearly in the gray zone, I think. Uh, so which is worse, as a hypothetical here, 
a stud manager, uh, somebody who works in a horse facility that forcefully uh, collects the semen of a prized racehorse by manually masturbating the stallion for her own commercial gain, or a woman who masturbates her companion horse in her own private stable to bring pleasure to both she and the animal. For zoophiles that prefer to be the recipients of anal penetration, in fact, this happens to be, to be the majority of zoophiles, rather than those who do the actual penetrating of another species' orifices themselves, it's also rather odd to argue that the creature has not consented uh, to its own act of insertion. And when penetration of other animals does occur, harm is still occasionally unclear. With equines, at least, uh, anyone who has ever seen a horse penis uh, approximately the size of a small motorcycle <laughs> knows that it's you know it's probably unlikely that even the largest human phallus uh, would cause anything approaching harm. <laughs> Finally, while the thought of bestiality elicits significant moral outrage, most people in our society, strangely enough, have no such concern for the equally thorny problem of how to gain an animal's consent for eating it. Now, even when sexual consent can be ling linguistically gauged with members of our own species, it's not always so straight straightforward. In most cultures, for example, prevailing social forces determine the age at which people can legally participate in sexual activity with others, or at least others who are more than a certain number of years older than they are. Any given legal age of consent may sound to members of that society perfectly reasonable, and they might even be based themselves on some principle of human development but that there are wild fluctuations in what constitutes a minor over both space and time also reveals whatever age selected to be an arbitrary set point. Until close to the 20th century, in fact, Delaware's legal age of consent was a mind-boggling seven years old. And in most other states, it was around 12. Still, like anti-bestiality laws, such age restrictions on sexuality, whatever they are, are good and just overall in that they are designed to keep children safe and uh, adolescents uh, from being harmed by sexually exploitative adults. More interesting to me than this, the cultural arbitrariness of particular age restrictions on sex is the philosophical problem. The very notion of a legal age of consent is like saying that a person cannot legally feel as he or she does. Throughout much of the world, any person under the age of 18 who agrees to some sexual action or who even pursues this action of their own volition is vetoed by a government that renders their psychology irrelevant in any consideration of harm posed to them as individuals. And unlike the case of the man who raped the donkey in 18th century France, consent in most criminal cases today involving adults accused of having sex with underage partners does not refer to the latter's mental state of willingness. Instead, the sexual feelings of anyone under the legal age of consent are held as the property of the state in which the minor subsides. So to have sex with a consenting minor, uh, is, which is an oxymoron in legalistic terms, is to steal from the state. People do not inherit full rights to their own body, nor can they claim their private, private erotic desires as their own until some executively mandated calendar day. And only on that day does consent transform abruptly and literally at the stroke of midnight from a chronological state into a mental state, with the state relinquishing its power over the individual's genitals. 
There are many other examples of conceptual tensions uh, in our thinking about the legal issue of consent. One would probably be stigmatized for doing so, for example, but it's perfectly lawful to have sexual intercourse with someone who is over the age of 18, but who has the mind of a child. <laughs> the average mental age of a person with Down syndrome, uh, for example, is that of an eight-year-old. Um, yet unlike horny high school seniors brandishing average or even genius level IQs, Down syndrome adults can legally consent to sex. Now, this is not to say that anomalous cases render broader protective laws illogical, but sometimes even our most passionate intuitions of wrongfulness aren't always as logical as we'd like to believe. Years ago, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt coined the term moral dumbfounding to refer to the phenomenon in which people struggle to elaborate on the precise reasons for why they believe some acts are immoral. Tautologies such as it's disgusting because it's gross or it's wrong because it's evil. Uh, they, these echo intense social disapproval for certain crimes that emotions aside arguably shouldn't be considered crimes at all. Now consider this consent that I'm about to read, this, this vignette that I'm about to read to you. It's from a published study in this area. And here's what participants who were in this study heard. This was one of the examples of the stories that they read, and they were asked questions about it. A man belongs to a necrophilia club. Uh, and this necrophilia club has devised a way to satisfy the desire to have sex with dead people. Each member donates his or her body to the club after death so that the other members can have sex with the corpse. And the man has sex with a dead woman who, give, who gave her body to the club. So think about that for a little bit. <laughs> when asked whether or not it was wrong for this man to do what he did and more Importantly, to articulate and to justify their responses, many participants defaulted to a presumption of harm in their moral reasoning. Even then, when they were told explicitly that the woman did not have any family members who might get upset if they found out what happened to her corpse, uh, that the club isn't interested in recruiting or harming living people, that neither the man nor any of the other club members suffer any regrets or personal anguish about their sexuality, that the group's activities are kept private and consensual, that the man used protection to prevent the spread of disease, and per her instructions that the club cremated the woman's body after the man was done, most people still insisted that somehow or another, someone somewhere must be getting harmed. <laughs> For social conservatives, the harm might even be seen as inflicted on symbolic entities. America, for example, uh, the church, society, or even the sanctity of marriage. And it's not just necrophilic sex, of course. Researchers find presumption of harm reasoning among participants contemplating other verboten sex acts with similarly clear caveats about harmlessness, uh, one of them including incest. Uh, so this is a, an image of the, the Peters twins who are pornographic uh, actors um, that happen to be identical twins. And um, it's very controversial that they actually engage in full anal penetration um, in their scenes. And they are in love with each other. This is what they tell reporters and the media that actually um, engages in some type of discourse with them. I was never familiar with them before this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's a very interesting sort of hypothetical example here 
because when we try to articulate why, you know, we have this sort of a, this intuition that it's wrong or some aversive, aversive uh, um, response to seeing identical twins like this actually engaging in intercourse, um, we have a difficult time, I think, unpacking why it's wrong exactly. There's no possibility of procreation in this sense and um, uh, genital, uh, um, uh, um, uh, sorry, um, genetic uh, damages that are associated with their, their sexual activity. Now, that's all well and good, I think, for these abstract hypothetical examples, but for rape, child abuse, and bestiality, it's hard to see how such a powerfully negative response could ever be a bad thing, really. Even in evolutionary terms, uh, moral outrage is a smart system, that it helps to drive out malignant social elements that cripple the cohesive functioning of the group. Hatred of those who endanger the most cherished or vulnerable members of, of society is rational, if not always logical. The downside of having evolved to become so easily swept up by moral flash flooding in the sexuality domain is that these unyielding currents tend to drown out meaningful vicissitudes. Relatively harmless cases, harmless anyway when you accept that harm is something that can really only occur at the level of a subjectively experiencing organism, human or animal, with, that actually possesses pain receptors and neural systems that are able to register emotional trauma, not at the level of a mindless symbolic entity such as society. These harmless cases rattle in the emotional deluge against the most violent, unspeakable crimes. And as this colonial era hunt for prodigies that we went over and those suspected of conspiring with the devil to produce uh, these uh, hybrids showed, any social system that operates on a better safe than sorry principle is prone to moral panics and false positives. Whenever evil is perceived to be an essential trait rather than reserved for harmful actions that's commit, that are committed against actual others. Human nature is going to become furtive and people are going to cling to facades. So is it any wonder then that you blanched when I called you a pervert earlier on? Just for you. Your mic's not working. Huh? Your mic's not working. Do I need to take this one? No, so just use that. Do I take this one? If you want. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so there's mics either side. If you've got questions, start to head down there because we've only got 10 minutes and I'm sure some of you might even have statements that you'd like to share <laughs> about who you are. Um, Come on, you perverts. Yeah, all you perverts out there. But how many, we talk about paraphilias, is it that prevalent that we need to be worried about it? Is it something to be worried about? Well, I, I suppose it depends on what you mean by worry about there. I mean, there are 547 distinct paraphilias. Um, and some of those paraphilias are reserved to just two or three people in the entire world, and they're incredibly rare. Uh, there are a certain category of subcategory of paraphilias, including pedophilia, um, um, sadomasochism, exhibitionism, voyeurism, um, fraturism, which is touching people in public, that I think are inherently or at least potentially dangerous, and that's why they are diagnosed as mental illnesses, psychiatric disturbances, whether or not the person is comfortable with them. Um, all the other paraphilias require the person actually to be experiencing some type of subjective distress. 
to be labeled a true mental disorder. And do paraphilias have a sort of a gender bias? Have we, are there, are there more? Oh, it's a male phenomenon, yes. Right. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the really fascinating things about this literature, that the, the paraphilias seem to be disproportionately male, um, and it's not entirely clear why that's the case. The researchers are still trying to unpack or examine that, that particular gender distortion. Um, there are some paraphilias where we do find women represented, um, including uh, sadomasochism. Fifty Shades of Grey is probably a good example of why, uh, where that would be manifested. Um, but uh, for the vast majority of all the other sexual, whether you want to call them orientations or paraphilias, it's it's really a male phenomenon. Um, and you know, the interesting thing about paraphilias is is, is what doesn't turn these people on. Uh, people that have these paraphilias are limited in their erotic response, or what can deliver an orgasm for them in, a, in, in terms of the circumscribed set of uh, erotic stimuli uh, that bring them to orgasm. Whereas you might find people without paraphilias that are, that are aroused by a vast array of things, including things that would be classified under the paraphilia domain, uh, but not just that. Okay. And women are much turned on by a, a, a much broader variety, variety of things as well. Um, so we'll take a question over here. Hi, Danielle. Oh, hi, Marcus. How are you? <laughs> um, thanks so much. This is a great talk. I'm a Kinsey Six. The only woman I've been in since childbirth is the Statue of Liberty. Awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have. Uh, I was really pleased to hear you say your that, mother, um, that the fact <laughs> that we talk about sexual perversion is moral progress, and mm. I have a question for you about gay marriage. Mm. In the rush, and I agree with equal rights, but in the rush to get equal rights, the gay lobby is leaving behind deviance. Senator Bernardi, who's a liberal staffer, was forced to resign for saying, oh, if we have gay marriage, what's next? Bestiality, polygamy. Mm -hmm. I know people in polyamorous relationships. The gay marriage lobby ignores intersex. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, am I saying, when we talk about sexual perversion, is the gay, the official gay marriage lobby, is it taking a morally backward step by leaving yeah. parts of it behind? I mean, it's a really good question. I, I mean, as a gay writer writing about sexual deviance and also somebody who is legitimately concerned about gay rights and, you know, from my own personal biases with my partner and so on, um, it's very easy, I think, to, uh, to sever yourself from all these other sexual orientations and uh, minority uh, uh, um, categories. And I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake in philosophical terms uh, from a scientific analysis. Um, and it's also potentially a mistake uh, in, in, in this more humanitarian sense that I think that you're referring to it by, um, you, know, you know, taking a stand about the you know, gays and lesbians are okay, but all these other people are, you know, kind of crazy and weird, and uh, they should be the foils for what we shouldn't be. Um, and, yeah, so I think that the gay and lesbian community by and large, and, of course, there are people like us that don't necessarily identify terribly strongly with uh, any type of pol sociopolitical, maybe uh, gay orientation in that sense, um, are are overzealous uh, in their efforts to um, distinguish their orientations from anything else. That's, a, that's quite a, a dangerous statement from a, from a gay man, you know, talking the other night 
only, you know, homosexuality was a paraphilia, recognised mm. paraphilia until not that long ago, and paedophilia is a recognised paraphilia yeah. so yeah i mean i don't think we want to necessarily go as far as saying you know we should accept sexual diversity and sort of with all of its glorious manifestations i mean i think that might be going a little bit far there are certainly paraphilias that are inherently dangerous and i think that we need to be aware of that um but uh from a definitional perspective uh whether some, whether somebody is attracted to the opposite sex or to animals or to certain erotics to certain age profiles whether we want to call it a, um, a sexual orientation or not, it exists, and it's the same phenomenon in the sense that one has absolutely no choice over what they are attracted to. You can't change it once it's locked into place, uh, whether that happens prenatally or etiologically as a consequence of early childhood experiences. Um, it's an orientation. Uh, it might not be a politically correct term, but that's really what it is, and you can't change it. So, so with... Um, was it Hebe so Hebephiles potentially being considered to be in the new DSM? Is that right? So there are uh, there researchers now are teasing apart this erotic age orientation uh, construct so that it's not just simply anybody who's attracted to uh, anybody under the age of 18 is a pedophile, but in fact there are these uh, shades of orientations in terms of the particular. Uh, physical characteristics related to age. So a pedophile is sort of classically attracted to somebody that's a prepubescent without any secondary sexual characteristics. A hebophile is more your traditional Lolita, and I live in Ithaca, New York now, where uh, Nabokov wrote Lolita, so it's really interesting to me. But uh, a hebophile is somebody who's attracted to, to a child uh, sort of on the brink of adolescence, the pubescent state. And a febophile is somebody who's attracted to older adolescents, older teenagers, a teleophile is a reproductively mature, legally aged adult, typically. And gerontophile is somebody attracted to the elderly. So there's a whole range of uh, erotic age orientations that researchers are discovering exist. And, you know, they know it, it exists because they put them in laboratory conditions where they look at their erections to pictures of, you know, different images of differently aged targets and so on. And um, uh, there are these, you know, these are clear patterns. I've got two questions. Is it ever morally acceptable for children to have sex with other children? Mm. Um, and are there instances um, when uh, pedophilia can be harmless? That's not a dangerous question at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've got two responses to that, I guess. One, one interesting uh, set of findings that I recently came across was that um, children that and we were talking about this earlier actually children that have um, that play doctor with other kids in their early childhood as adults are actually more likely to be attracted to minors than uh, those who didn't uh, have those uh, early play experiences with with other children um, so that's interesting so I think you know whether we want to say it's okay or not is kind of irrelevant to the fact that this is a phenomenon um, I don't. I don't see any. I don't see any harm per se in similarly aged children, you know, having you know playing doctor or sex play or something along those lines in terms of the sort of the innocence and exploration of each other's bodies and learning about other people. Um, but uh, 
what what is uh, relevant, I think, to, to, with that question and the science that I just mentioned is the fact that it happens in a society where it is so shameful uh, for any child to have any sexual encounter that that experience um, might be um, seen as so atypical by the child or so uh, salient in their early autobiography that somehow it actually you know, causes these deviant patterns in later adulthood. Um, and the reason I think that's, that might be the case is that in other societies, you find lots of uh, play, sexual play activity in, you know, uh, Central Africa, for example. Uh, there are communities where it's natural for, you know, prepubescent boy and girl to play husband and wife, including simulating sexual intercourse. Um, and there are virtually no paraphilias in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and so part of the problem could be the, the social ambiance by which these activities occur and them somehow, you know, registering or, or making a dent in consciousness that actually caused these problems in terms of adult sexuality. Your other question about whether it is always harmful um, for a child to have, uh, what is it, to have, to have sex with or to have some sexual experience with an adult? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think that it, right now the, the literature is so occluded by the, um, this very strong um, opinion that it is inherently bad and there's absolutely nothing that could possibly be good about it. Um, there, there, were, there were some studies that came out um, in developmental psychology about a decade or so ago where the researcher was basically trying to make the argument that, in fact, that it's not always intrinsically bad, especially for adolescents that have sexual encounters with adults um, in terms of their retrospective analysis and how much you know, trauma they experienced emotionally. Uh, many of them say that it really didn't impact them in any sort of significant way, and some of them actually said it was positive. Um, so I think, you know, it's potentially, uh, it's a very inflammatory topic, obviously, but um, it depends on the individual. And I think that the, uh, the, when we're talking about extremely young kids, you know, uh, prepubescent children, I can't imagine any benefits of, uh, uh, of an adult sort of uh, taking advantage of a child in, in that fashion because the child is so naive and their sexual desires are qualitatively different. Um, at a subjective phenomenological level, that um, uh, their analysis of the situation will be uh, warped, I think. But when we're talking about a 16 or 17-year-old having sex with a 20-year-old or 21-year-old, I think that's an entirely different uh, um, question. So we're out of time, and there's a page of questions I have. You probably have two pages. We'll take one more quick, quick, quick question and a quick, quick answer from Jesse. And then he'll be signing books outside so you can ask him more and you can ask him what the craziest paraphilia is that he knows about and things like that. Quick question. Hey, Kat, hey. how are you? Hey, uh, my name's Katarina and I'm a yeah, sexual no, I reckon, pervert. I recognize <laughs> <laughs> Just, um, so this uh, next weekend I'm heading up to the Gold Coast to meet with a gay couple and their surrogate with view to donating my eggs. What are your thoughts on, on the impact of creating a child with two daddies? The impact on the child developing and without a mother? On both, as, as your view as a psychologist mm. and who happens to be gay. Quick answer. I, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> um, no, there's no data suggesting that there is some inherently, um, uh, there, there are any sort of deep, significant emotional trauma um, for the child in not having 
a mother um, raise the child. If, if the, you know, to me, just it's rather common sense that if you've got two caring adults um, that are invested in the, in the well-being and uh, the development of the child, that's much better than um, having a, a mother and a father that aren't as uh, um, parentally sort of concerned. So I think you're doing a good thing, and I don't think that the, um, the gender influence is going to be terribly significant in terms of any uh, uh, orientation that the child may have, and there's no data suggesting that that's going to play any role whatsoever. There you go. <laughs> Jesse Baring. <laughs>